Lord, how could we be more thankful to you than we are today for the privilege of being together, not all of us, but all of us who believe they should be here today. And those who are unable to be here today, oh, Father, bless them as if they were here because they are one with us as we together are one in your Son. You are the head, and all of us, whether in this room down the hall or watching remotely because they can't come, all of us are one in Christ. We are one body, and so we praise you. Thank you, Father, for every opportunity that we have to gather, even remotely. But this morning, oh, Father, this is the beginning of the beginning for us, the renewing of our ability to meet together and worship you. And so we praise you. We give you thanks because you are worthy of our praise and thanksgiving. And we give it all to you in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today we are still in Colossians chapter 2 and will be for another week after this. Let me begin by making a statement. How God thinks of you, how God thinks of you is the most important thing about you. And the thoughts that you conceive about God are the most important and influential thoughts you will ever have. In the middle of John 17, which we read a moment ago, Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus asks the Father, in verse 21, that they, his followers, may be one, just as the Father, just as, Father, you are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Five verses later, then, he prays, I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and listen to these words, and I in them. Behold, the foundations of what is arguably the most precious and magnificent doctrine of God's revelation to man, namely that by the sacrificial death of his son, God has not only forgiven our sins and given us the promise of eternal life, but the way God thinks of us is radically and eternally altered. Instead of viewing us as just objects of his righteous wrath, he now thinks of us as united with or existing in Christ. And beloved, this is of supreme importance because, listen carefully, the way God thinks about you determines how he relates with you. And since God now thinks of you as united in Christ, the love that the Father has always had for the Son with whom he is one, that same love he has for his Son is the same love that he has for you. And that is to say, if you are in Christ, my friend, God loves you with the same love 
with which he loves Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this, that God created man for his glory and for our great joy. But man of his own accord rejected God and rejected his promises of blessing and scoffed at his singular warning. He did the one thing that God had forbidden him to do and thereby broke fellowship with God and earned the grim and inescapable judgment. God, however, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, humbled himself and became a man. And as a man, he fulfilled all God's righteous requirements and bore the penalty for all of our unrighteousness in his body on the cross. And now, the free offer of grace extends to all. Those who repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are saved to the uttermost and brought into such a relationship with God that the Apostle Paul talks about it again and again and again. And the way he loves to speak about it most dominantly in all of his writings is by saying two words, in Christ, in Christ. Apparently a number of the men and women in ancient the ancient city of Colossae listened to this message when Epaphras, the disciple of Paul, preached it, and many repented from the heart and were born again. Or as Paul describes it in chapter 1, verse 13, they were delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Paul hints here that he had not had the privilege of meeting these dear people face to face, but he loved them already. He loved them. And he was very concerned for them. It's not as though he, they had fallen into any false doctrine. We, we get the impression throughout this letter that Paul is trying to ward that off. He's not correcting them necessarily. He's warning them about the false teaching that is trying to get in. And there were many. There were false teachers roaming the land who were proclaiming a gospel that sounded so similar to the gospel of Jesus that it was tricking people. Professing believers were giving up the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ in favor of an approach to God that was harder and more complicated and yet somehow seemed so much more religious, at least as far as men conceive of religion. Theirs was a religion that, to be sure, tipped its hat to Christ and, and seemed to honor Jesus for his sacrifice, but which also required additions to Christ. For instance, abstinence from certain foods and attendance at certain feasts and Sabbath days. They required severe treatment of the body on occasion. And it all seems so plausible. It all seems so logical and attainable. After all, that's how all the, the other religions of the world approach their gods. But Paul, Paul knew that the tantalizing invitation that was being offered to the saints in Colossae came from the mouth of the same serpent who had deceived Eve in the garden. 
Notice how Paul describes it in chapter 2, verse 8. He says, See to it that no one take you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition, according to the elemental principles or elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I suspect that every Christian hearing my voice today, whether you're in this building somewhere or whether you were at home, I bet you would have to confess that there have been occasions in your walk with Christ that could be described as anything but flourishing. You know what I mean. I'm talking about the times when you found reading the Word of God merely to be something that you could check off the box for in hopes that you would not be embarrassed if someone were to ask you. Or... Times when you've lost your joy in prayer, or the thrill of ministry, or perhaps the, the glorious meaning of the Lord's table, it all became just so hollow and so unexciting and unimpactful for you. And we all know this. We've all experienced it. You'll hear people say, I'm just going through a dry spell. I get it. We all have experienced it. And then sometimes we even find ourselves thinking about sharing the gospel as nothing more than duty rather than a glorious privilege. And it's in times like these that one may be tempted to look over the fence at the other religion next door to see how they attempt to engage with God. What are they doing that maybe we can learn from? Maybe they're doing something that could spice up our experience with God. And Paul is warning us against just that kind of thinking. This morning, Paul is saying that whether you're a brand new Christian or have been walking with the Lord for a lifetime, the message is this. No matter how young or old in the Lord you may be, the secret to maximum Christian flourishing is simply to be captivated by Christ. Captivated by Christ. In other words, Experiencing the fullest measure, the most fruitful relationship with God your whole life long simply means to set your mind on Christ, to set your heart on Christ, to set your affections on Christ, to set your faith on Christ, to set all of your hope on Christ. It means to be captivated by Christ. His deity, his mortality, his humility, his humanity, his sovereignty, his tenderness, his justice, his patience, his joy, his love, his forgiveness, his righteousness, his grace. Beloved, you could take any one of these magnificent attributes and eternal perfections of Christ and sit down with your Bible and be captivated by it. Beloved, we make Christianity so difficult. So difficult. And it's not difficult. It is impossible apart from Christ, but you are in Christ. 
You have everything. You have everything. To experience the fullness of Christian flourishing, we need look nowhere but to Christ. He is, as Paul says, our all in all. Paul wants us to experience abundant life in Christ, and, and that doesn't mean that you're going to get a new car or, or you're going to be suddenly get healed or, or you're going to get that check in the mail that you didn't expect but you're really, really hoping for. That's not abundant life. You know what abundant life is? It's the same as eternal life. It's to know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. His letter comes back to this theme again and again. But where do we begin to get a grasp on what it means to truly flourish as a child of God? What are the basics of Christian flourishing? Well, Paul's approach in this part of Colossians, and there is much more to be said. We can only take a few verses at a time. But Paul's approach here in this part of Colossians can be broken into three sections. In the passage before us, I think we find a, a doctrine to embrace, a duty to fulfill, and a danger to avoid. But before we look at these in these details, let's, uh, let's stand together again and do what we always do in honor of the Word of God. Let's read it together. And isn't it a marvelous privilege to finally be able to meet together and to sing together, as hard as it is through a face mask, right? And to read God's Word together. That's why I asked Jason to read, read the whole chapter of John 17. And now we're going to read again Colossians 2, just 6 through 10. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, rooted in building and built up in him, established in the faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deception according to human tradition, according to eternal, the, the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ, for in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. The first thing we should acknowledge here in this passage is that there is a, a doctrine to embrace. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this. I talked about it at length last week. I'm going to talk about it. Already talked about it a little bit this morning. We'll talk about it a little bit more, and then next week we're going to talk about it again because I... It, it's just so critical that we as a church understand what it means to be in union with Christ. So, in chapters 1 and 2 um, are full, really, of union, grammar, and vocabulary. What is union with Christ? Well, it is, I gave you a definition a couple of weeks ago, and, and here's another one, maybe a little more simple. Union with Christ is sharing in the life of Jesus Christ by faith, which allows us to share in all the benefits and riches that result from his person and work. Let me read it again. Sharing, this is union with Christ, sharing in the life of Jesus Christ by faith, which allows us to share in all the benefits and riches that result from his person and his work we will be rightly situated 
to understand the verses before us. However, if we observe the fact that Paul has made it through, are you ready? Paul has made it through 34 verses without issuing a single command. And there's something to that. I'll touch on it today and expound perhaps more on it next week. This, beloved, is both remarkable and intentional. In fact, in most of Paul's letters, we see this pattern, this trend, how he tends to go out of his way to establish doctrinal truth before he exhorts us with practical instruction. And we could take our time to go through many of the 13 letters of Paul, but here in Colossians, it's easy to see. In the case of Colossians, Paul invests much of the first chapter in proclaiming the doctrine of the preeminence of Christ. In verses 15 through 20, in particular, Paul focuses on the glory of Jesus as divine, as, as divine creator, sustainer, and reconciler of all things. He is building up Christ in our mind. He's wanting us to look up to Christ. He talks about how the Father rescued us from darkness and brought us into the light of Jesus. He reveals that despite the fact that we used to relate to God with hostility, Christ now is preparing us to stand before his Father, holy, blameless, and I love this one, beyond reproach. How can it be? And if that weren't enough, Paul reveals the sacred mystery hidden for past ages and generations, namely, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, your only hope of heaven. Union with Christ is the promise of eternal life. We will live forever because he lives forever and we are in him. All of these truths are divine indicatives. If, if you're not a language person, indicative might just seem like a foreign word. An indicative is something that just is. To say it's an indicative means this word indicates that something is. An imperative is something we must do, but an indicative is just what is true. And so for 34 verses, all Paul has been doing is saying, this is true of Christ, this is true of Christ, this is true of Christ. Stand back, look at it, be amazed. Run to Christ, learn of Christ. These are the things of Christ. All of these truths are divine indicatives about which Paul will establish his practical imperatives on. And we need to understand that the indicatives must come first because knowing Christ always precedes living for Christ. Oh, beloved, when, when you come to the book of Colossians or when you get into the book of Ephesians and you're just having your quiet time, do you just skip the doctrinal stuff? It's always at the beginning. I mean, shame on you if you do that with Romans because you're going to skip the first 11 chapters. This is very intentional. The indicatives must come first because knowing Christ always precedes living for Christ. And it is by growing in the knowledge of Christ that we fan the flame of devotion to Christ in our hearts. Paul always reveals Christ 
before he calls us to follow Christ. He always explains Christ before he commands us to do anything for Christ and with Christ. And that brings us to verses 6 and 7 where we will start not the doctrine to embrace, but now the duty to fulfill. Paul is finally getting to an imperative. But even in this, it doesn't feel like an imperative, and I'll show you why. Verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. There's the imperative. Rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now here Paul very clearly ties ties together towering theology with practical living. The towering theology comes first, but it's tied to the practical living. He says, people who are saved by union with Christ ought to live in union with Christ. Makes sense, right? If you've been saved by union with Christ, you should live in union with Christ. A new lifestyle is befitting people whose new standing who have a new standing in the eyes of God. We are now relating to God differently. Therefore, we should live differently. And we can live differently. And so Paul says, as you have received Christ, so walk in him. So then you have to ask, how did we receive Christ? Because that's the key to knowing how we should walk in him. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And how did we begin walking, or, or how did we receive Christ? And the answer is by faith. By faith. We walk by faith. We walk trusting him. We walk in obedience to his word. And what does it mean to walk or live in him? Notice, four participles. First, rooted in him. Second, built up in him. Third, established. Now, this word is sometimes translated strengthened. And then the fourth participle is abounding. Now, it will repay us to exercise a little patience with the grammar here. The word rooted is a perfect passive. Everybody yawn. <laughs> now, but this is important. It refers to something rooted. This perfect pass, passive refers to something that has happened to us in the past, but which has abiding results. And so we ask ourselves from the text, what is it that happened in the past that has abiding results? And the answer to that, of course, is you received Christ Jesus as Lord. That's what happened to you in the past. You didn't do it. He did it. That's why it's passive. So God, what did God do? God uprooted us from the domain of darkness and planted us in the kingdom of his beloved son. This is where your walk in Christ began. The next two participles are built up and established. Both terms are in the present tense, not in the perfect tense. Now that it's in the present tense, which means happening now. Happening now, 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 and now. I mean, for the rest of your life, it's happening. It ought to be happening. It's present. So both terms are in, in, in the present tense. The term built up implies that we are continually growing. 
And the term establish indicates that we are increasing in strength, which is what happens. Think about when when a baby is growing. It gets bigger and it gets stronger. And hopefully it gets smarter and usually does. And notice that the objects of this preposition, these prepositions are the faith. Not just faith, but the faith. Not your faith, but the faith. The faith in Paul's writings usually refers either to the gospel specifically or to all Christian doctrine as found in the Bible. This is confirmed by the words, look at your text, verse 6, I think, just as you were taught. So whatever this faith is, is something that you were taught. So in other words, the faith is something that the Colossians had been taught. It is propositional truth. It is doctrine. It is worship as revealed in the Word of God. So to walk in Christ means that I'm actively and continually growing deeper and stronger in Christ. This is sanctification, right? We're growing deeper and stronger in my understanding of and my obedience to the truths that are revealed in the Word of God, especially those truths that reveal Jesus. We are growing in the knowledge of Jesus, or we can say we are growing in love for Jesus. John chapter 8, Jesus says to the Pharisees, if God were your father, you would love me. And in Deuteronomy it says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Are you growing? Are you becoming stronger in your love for Christ, your devotion to Christ, your obedience to Christ? But we should also notice here that these words are in the passive voice, which tells us this is really significant. You listening? All eyes up here for just a minute. It's in the passive voice, which means that all of this working and growing, all of this sanctification, this work of growing in spiritual maturity, in strength, it is all a dependent work. It is a dependent work. Yes, I am actively engaged in the walking, but progress in my walk is dependent on the sovereign working of the Holy Spirit in my life. Yes, I can pray. Yes, I can share the gospel and learn how to do it better. Yes, I can engage in Bible studies and and just engage in the study of the Word by myself if I want. I can strive to grow deeper in the things of God, but I must always remember, listen, God gives the growth. We get no credit for it. We don't get it without pursuing it, but God gives the growth. Do you realize that you can read your Bible all day long and not grow in Christ at all? It happens all the time. People read their Bibles. Liberal theologians, they even study. Uh, They get deeper into this stuff than I do, generally. They don't grow a lick because they don't believe it. It's not getting into their hearts. Without the powerful influence of the indwelling Holy Spirit, you may be able to learn the words of the Bible. You may be able to memorize long passages of the Bible, but it will have no effect 
upon your heart because God gives the growth. You need the Holy Spirit to do his part before you can ever respond appropriately to any portion of Scripture. In fact, Paul says this, he makes it very, very simple and shockingly so in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, when Paul goes so far as to say, no one can even say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. I mean, you can say the words, but you can't mean it. And if you don't mean it, you don't believe it, and you're not growing in it. God gives the growth. We are dependent upon him for all spiritual growth. And God is committed to causing your growth. That's the good news. God is more committed to your growth than you will ever be. Paul is telling us that the gospel is for sanctification, not merely salvation. Trusting in Jesus Christ is about sanctification, not just getting eternal life in heaven when you die. Walking in Christ is a continuous hike to higher elevations of spiritual maturity until we are fully conformed to the likeness of Christ. And implicit in God's word here is the fact that if you are alive in Christ, you have the Spirit of God. You already have the Spirit of God. And therefore, you will be growing, as we often say when we are counseling people in my office. Listen, be encouraged. God doesn't expect you to be perfect, but he does expect you to be growing. If you are a child of God, you'll never be perfect until you see him face to face, but now you should be growing. Yes, it will, I, I said it's, it's a continual ascent. It's, it's more like peaks and valleys, right? But you're striving for it, and he is empowering it. You see, our pursuit of growth is a dependent pursuit. And practically speaking, that means whenever I take up the word of God to read it, perhaps I should pray first. Perhaps I should talk to God a little bit before I read his word and say something like, Father, I'm about to read your word just now because I want to grow. I want to grow in the knowledge and love of Christ. But I know I know that I cannot truly grow unless you grant the growth by your Spirit. I am dependent. You are independent. I am dependent. As a branch is dependent on a vine, I confess that my soul is dependent on you. My growth is dependent upon you. Now we come to the last participle, verse 7. And it is the word abounding. Again, it's describing this walk that Paul is commanding us to have with Christ in Christ. And the important, this important term is, is not a passive. It is a present active. It's the only one of the four, which tells us that the action is taking place continuously and I am responsible for doing it. It's taking place continually and I am responsible for doing it. It's like repent and keep on repenting. Believe and keep on believing. Here, Paul is saying, do this participle and keep on doing it. So what is the participle? Well, the participle is abounding. Abounding. Abounding was a term that in the, in the, in the old Greek used to refer to a river overflowing its banks. Paul loved this term. I forget how many times, 46 times in his letters he uses this 
term to talk about the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God. What is God calling us to do in an abounding manner? Are you ready for this? Look at verse 7. Giving thanks. Giving thanks. He says, watch this. Built up in him and established in your faith just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Think of it like this. God in his grace plants us in Christ and gives us the capacity to grow in spiritual maturity and strength. And in response to the growth that he gives to us, the river of our thankfulness overflows its banks as we offer it back to him. He pours out his grace on us and we turn the river of our thankfulness back upon him. And beloved, you've heard me say this before. Out of Romans chapter 1, and one of the marks of an unbeliever is they don't give thanks. But if you're a child of God, your thanks should be overflowing. When you give thanks today for the meal you're about to receive, be overflowing with thanksgiving. Every time God does something and you realize, oh, God just blessed us, cultivate that. And then when you see it, abound in thanksgiving. Abound in thanksgiving. So God pours his grace upon us and in return, we offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving back to him. Beloved, this is not an insignificant point in Colossians. Let me show you how important this was to Paul. There are only four chapters. There are one, two, three, four, five times he tells us to be thankful. Chapter 1, verse 3, he says, we always thank God. Chapter 1, verse 12, give thanks to the Father. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. There's something to be thankful for. Oh God, praise you. Praise you that you rescued me from the domain of darkness. Chapter 3, verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. We want the peace. We forget thankfulness. Where, where were the other lepers? Why didn't they come back? In chapter 3, verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In chapter 4, verse 2, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in, in it with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. So in everything, give thanks. And this is what Paul is doing. Chapter 1, give thanks. Chapter 2, give thanks. Chapter 3, Give thanks, give thanks. Chapter 4, give thanks. Everything that you discover in the Bible, you should thank God for. I was walking early this morning, didn't know how to, didn't, I was tired. I had a glass of water, and before I hit the street and I'm wanting to pray, Lord, I don't know how to pray. What, what, what can I pray about? And I thought about this. I thought about just giving thanks to God for everything I can think of. Lord, thank you for delivering me from the domain of darkness. And thank you for the glory of the sunrise this morning. It's a gift. It's a gift from your hand. Praise you. Thank you. This is what people who walk in, the, in, in Christ do. And perhaps sometimes the reason we fail to really flourish 
in Christ is because we don't actively allow the river of our thanksgiving to overflow its banks back to God. Maybe it's because we're neglecting to be thankful. In the mind of Paul, thankfulness is an essential part of spiritual flourishing. It is a dominant characteristic of one who is captivated by Christ. So much so, in fact, that a failure to offer heartfelt thanksgiving to God makes us, I think, vulnerable to false teaching. This is the context that Paul presents it. And that's probably the case because it short-circuits our joy in Christ. You know when you're going to be the most joyful? When you're the most thankful. When you're speaking to God about how grateful you are for the things he has done. If you are not flourishing in Christ today, ask yourself, have I been actively offering grateful prayers of thanksgiving to God for all his mercies toward me? Am I abounding in thankfulness? Is the river of my thanksgiving to God overflowing its banks? Sometimes you listen to the Apostle Paul rejoice in Christ, giving thanks to Christ, and you could almost say, Paul, that's too much. To which he would respond, exactly. It should overflow the banks of all propriety and everything else. Just be thankful and who cares how they think of you. Paul wants us to be thankful mostly for Christ himself. In fact, he wants us to be captivated by Christ as he wants. Paul wants the believers in Colossae to flourish spiritually in their walk with Christ. He wants them to be continually growing and becoming stronger in the faith that they had been taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Beloved, this is the duty that we are called to fulfill. And it is a duty of delight. That's why I said at the beginning, it's hardly a duty. He's asking us, he's requiring us to do something that is going to fill our hearts with joy over Christ. The duty of dependently pursuing spiritual growth and strength with a heart overflowing with thanksgiving to God, that's the duty. And so Paul approaches the te this teaching about flourishing in Christ that it starts with a doctrine to embrace and it moves to a duty to fulfill and then finally, and lastly, the, the danger to avoid. There is also a danger to avoid. And look at verse 8, here it is. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. When you're not flourishing in your walk with Christ, the philosophies and traditions of false teachers can begin exerting their gravitational pull on your heart. You say, that's never happened to me. Okay, but it happens to a lot of people. And it may happen to you. Over the years, I've, I've known several men and have heard of many more who were raised in Christian homes but who became disillusioned in the faith for who knows what reason. 
And in their failure to flourish in Jesus, they began looking over the fence at the neighbor's religion and found that sure enough, they acknowledged Christ in similar ways. But in addition to Christ, they, they also offer other things that seem also helpful. And for example, they offer praying to the saints. Maybe that'll spice up your prayer life. Or approaching Mary as intercessor. Christ our intercessor, intercessor yes, but we have to have Mary to intercess for, for us bef- to Christ before he intercedes for us to the Father. The doctrine of indulgences by which souls in purgatory can obtain a reduced sentence, the rosary, the rite of penance, confirmation, holy orders, last rites, and other so-called spiritual benefits. I've, on three occasions in Ukraine, have walked through the catacombs in Kiev, the catacombs of the, what used to be the Russian Orthodox Church, and watched as people in front of me walking through this claustrophobic tunnel. And we would come to a glass casket embedded in the wall with the body still in there, the hand sticking out of the robe, and they bend over and kiss the casket, thinking they will get more from God. They kiss the pictures. They do many of the things that Paul identifies here 2,000 years ago. It's still happening. And not just in these ways. If you put a little thought to it, you could find all kinds of others. And even the things that we are commanded to do can become something outside of Christ. My, my friends, none of the philosophies or traditions that undergird such religious systems come from the apostles, and none of them are according to Christ. No wonder Paul calls such practices philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. You don't need any of those things to flourish and grow in Christ. To the contrary. These things serve only to deceive and rob you of what God has promised you exclusively in Christ. Paul wants your heart to be ravished by Christ, constrained by Christ, captivated by Christ. Beloved, knowing Christ, knowing him more day by day, is the secret to Christian flourishing. How can it be that Jesus Christ is singularly sufficient to provide all that we need or could ever desire? Well, verse 9 tells us. Look at this. Verse 9. In him, the whole fullness of deity dwells, and you have been filled in him. You are in him and he fills all of you. You see, beloved, if you are in Christ, you already have everything you need. That's why we love singing that song, All I Have is Christ. It's not like that's somehow deficient. We are glorying in the reality that it's more than we can possibly comprehend. Christian growth is largely about getting to know what you have been given. Namely, 
Christ himself. And Paul expresses this dominating desire when he writes famously with this expression, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. You know what he's saying? All of these things are extreme to us. And he says, doesn't matter. I'd happily do any of them. I'd happily, happily experience any of it if it would help me know Christ. His sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And that's not a, that's not a statement of doubt He's the one who's teaching us about our union with Christ. He's the one who told us that our resurrection is in Christ. You want to know what enabled Paul to live such a fruitful, joyful, productive life? He had a singular focus. He was captivated by Christ. What Paul wanted for himself was a deeper knowledge of Christ. You want to know what he wants for you, what Paul wants for you, well, listen to how he prayed for you. In Ephesians 3, he says, I bow my knees before the Father, praying that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you, let's sound, see if any of this sounds familiar, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. Paul keeps, he writes a letter, he sends that message. Writes another letter, sends that message. Stories told of Charles Spurgeon. He was riding home one evening after a heavy day's work. He's a pastor of a very large church, feeling weary and de depressed. And the verse came to mind, my grace is sufficient for you. And in his mind, he immediately compared himself to a little fish in the Thames River. That's that, that big river that winds its way through England. He's apprehensive, like a little fish, that perhaps by drinking so many pints of water in the river each day, he might drink the Thames dry. And he imagines then Father Thames saying to him, Drink away, little fish. My stream is sufficient for you. And then he thought of a little mouse in the granaries of Egypt, afraid lest its daily nibbles exhaust the supplies and cause it to starve to death. And he imagines Joseph comes along and says, cheer up, little mouse. My granaries are sufficient for you. And then he thought of a man climbing high into the mountains to reach its lofty summit and dreading lest he by breathing might exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere. And the creator, he imagined, booms out with a loud voice out of heaven saying, breathe away, O oh man, fill your lungs. My atmosphere is sufficient for you. And so it is for you who are in Christ. You have him and that is enough. He is absolutely 
and abundantly sufficient for you. Friend, Paul doesn't want you merely to be a Christian, not merely to have your sins forgiven. He wants you to flourish in your walk with Christ. And the secret of maximum Christian flourishing is simply this, to be captivated by Christ. Let's pray. Father, as always, we're amazed when we come to your word, what you reveal to us, just in the simple meaning of the words on the page. Thank you, Lord, for not hiding yourself and hiding, as it were, mysteries that are so essential for us, but you have revealed them because you love us and you want us to flourish and thrive in our walk in you. So, oh, Father, I pray that you would help us to cultivate these things, to pursue these things, knowing that we are absolutely dependent upon you, even in understanding the doctrine to embrace and to pursue the duty that you call us to fulfill. And even also, Father, to avoid the dangers all around us that would draw us away from Christ. Oh, Father, save us, preserve us in this world, and fill us with your grace, we pray in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.